Well, I'll say, bless the Lord. You say, oh, my soul, bless the Lord. Bless his holy name. Thank you. My goodness, worship team. There, there are times when I'm in the middle of worship and have to realize, oh, I'm up next. I can't just sit here and be slain in the spirit. I'm Chris. I'm the pastor here at Kairos. Um, if you're new or you're a returning guest, I promise this week will be worse than last week. Um, I'm so grateful that Mike could come back um, and pastor. Mike was our founding pastor and a faithful spiritual father to Kairos. And uh, just glad he afforded me the opportunity to be out for the week. Um, I went on vacation with just my wife, no kids, which deserves a round of applause, even if you don't understand what that significantly means. Um, so my goal for vacation was to actually miss my kids, and it worked about day four. Um, but my wife and I uh, try to take a, a trip every year to celebrate our anniversary. I get away with her and realize I love her more than the day I met her. Uh, she is uh, uh, unbelievable, and it really does my heart good to have an extended conversation with her without being interrupted um, and to not be exhausted. So thank you for permission for, to rest uh, and to Sabbath and to restore and to make sure that my marriage is always the greatest demonstration of the way that I pastor. So we're, we're glad to be back. We actually got to go with um, two couple friends, uh, some college friends that I've been friends with for over 25 years. And so we fell back into familiar rhythms. Um, by the last night, uh, we we're pushing each other in the pool like we're 19 years old again, and it's not appropriate at the place we're staying at, but who cares? Um, it, we look a lot different than we did uh, back then. Um, we got out on the beach and compared our dad bods. Um, we did ourselves the dignity, not saying who won the best dad bod, but um, we started, one of our love languages is making fun of each other. Um, and when you've known people for 25 years, you have a familiarity that you can do that with them. And uh, we were called Rhodes, his favorite thing, Rhodes and Reikley played soccer. I was their little non-athlete charity friend. Um, and so, uh, again, I went to school in South Florida, so you can imagine these guys, they're, they got jackrabbit metabolisms, they're running all day, they're handsome studs, and here's me, their friend, hey, can I hang along? And so I spent a lot of my college trying to figure out diet and exercise so that I could keep up with these guys. And Rhodes would always tell me, Brooks, just eat what you want and run. And so immediately when he took off his shirt, I said, Rhodes, <laughs> just eat what you want and run. And uh, that set the tone for our vacation. <laughs> uh, I, as I was reflecting on that, I'm, I'll, I, I don't want to just make Rhodes uh, the butt of that joke because there is plenty of things in my life that I have made fun of but now in my life I make much of. You guys have heard me publicly repent of my sin of condemning the minivan. I've always said I'd never be that guy. I got four kids, I'm gonna to try to rock the Suburban as long as I can, but then it's death by gas bill. And so we jumped on the minivan and it is glorious. You just can't beat the gas mileage for the square footage. You can crush as many, many crackers and goldfish and gummies into cracks and crevices you can never possibly imagine in that thing and it doesn't complain. I can pack a family of six luggage in the back and we still got room, love it. Door open straight back, not making your car have dents in it in the parking lot, it's awesome. So I used to make fun of a minivan, now I make much of it. 
Uh, in college, I had a Jeep. It was a CJ7, and I used to make fun of Wranglers. I used to, my father-in-law had one, and I'm like, that's not a real Jeep, dude. It's got a dashboard. Is that okay for you? Ooh, you got air conditioning, all right? I now drive that Jeep, and so I make much of it. The top was down for today, and I was praising God for it, repenting of my previous sins. I still feel ashamed when I see a CJ7 come down. I'm like, hi. Making fun of a lot of things. I used to make fun of people with lap dogs. You know who you are, right? They're just weird. They're overgrown gerbils, okay? (laughs) Put that thing in a cage and give it a water bottle and some cedar chips. (laughs) I now own a lap dog. And uh, three days ago, one of Maggie's precocious know-it-all leadership friends um, was in our house. And if you hang with Maggie, you really got to be able to hold your own. And she does. And she's looking at Luna and she goes, your dog is small. Our dog is big. <laughs> and my fragile male ego is like, you want to dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? Okay. I said, hey, you know what big dogs have? What? Big poop. <laughs> you figure out the rest. He used to make fun of cats. We now have a cat. I still make fun of cats. <laughs> so I make fun of myself. I, I, I get it. A lot of things I used to make fun of, I make much of now. There's the not pleasant parts of things that I used to make fun of that I make much of now. I used to make fun of church. I used to point out all of its hypocrisies and idiosyncrasies and why I didn't think it lined up with what Jesus taught. Until one day he pulled me aside and said, you're making fun of my wife. The church is the bride of Christ. I used to make fun of music that I didn't think was good enough or rich enough or, oh my gosh, I can't sing this. It's just droning on and on and on. And now I make much of some of those songs and realize that there were times when my brain and my heart were not big enough to take in the majesty and grandeur of what it was saying. I used to make fun of pastors, and now I am one, so I have to make much of them. I used to make fun of how they talked and what they talked about, or how they dressed or didn't dress, and I had to repent of that, and now I'm so blown away by the dignity and perseverance that it requires to be a ministry leader. I used to make fun of the Bible's moral requirements. Now, I would never do that with my lips, but the way I lived my life, I lived it as if those things were a threat to my freedom. And now I've learned to make much of them because they're the gateway to my freedom. And I'm really embarrassed to admit to you, especially on this week of all weeks as we're in the Holy Week and we're at the tail end of 40 days of Lent getting ready to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, Easter. I used to make fun of people who would dwell too much on the cross and the crucified Jesus. If I ever saw a cross with Jesus actually crucified on it, I would mutter things like, he's not on the cross, he's risen. But I realized about myself is I wanted to push too quickly past the cross to get to the resurrection. And as we approach Good Friday, 
I wonder if I can't just pastor us to linger just a little bit longer at the cross and see what we might discover. Maybe see some areas in our life where we've been making fun of Jesus, where we need to make much of him. And I'm going to give away to you, I'm about to read a text in Luke that I'll have you turn to in just a second, but the punchline that is coming after Jesus has died, the last recorded words of a person in that chapter in Luke's gospel are from a Roman centurion who after he sees Jesus dies, says this, he praised God and he said, surely this was a righteous man. And the text we're about to read, I want to know what took this Roman centurion from making fun of Jesus to making much of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 23? We'll be in Luke chapter 23, and we'll start in verse 32. Let me pray for us. Jesus, would you just expand our perception of you in this place tonight? Holy Spirit, would you allow us to make much of Jesus? Father, would you give us the courage and the confidence to linger long enough at the cross to see the gravity of our sin and the grandeur of your grace? Would you call sons and daughters home? Would you raise dead people to life? And would you allow us to lock eyes with you and see a fierce mercy and justice blazing in your eyes? Jesus, would you go before us in this text and make a way? Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? And together we say, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. And they divided his clothes by casting lots. For some of you who can still hear the echoes of Joy reading our psalm, you'll notice some of the messianic prophecies fulfilled in the psalm that she read. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him, or loose translation, looked down their nose at him, and they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness 
came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. I'll say the word of the Lord if you'll say thanks be to God. The word of the Lord. What do you think? What in that text that we just read moved the Roman centurion from the beginning of the text, from making fun of Jesus to the end of the text, to making much of Jesus? I would submit four observations from the progression of this narrative that moves him to that place. First is Jesus, his response to being falsely accused, tortured, and executed. Verse 34, Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. Do you think, in this Roman centurion's mind, by the way, who he's probably overseeing like hundreds of executions, he's part of one of the world's largest, most powerful military forces on planet Earth at this time, who undeniably and unshakably carries out orders, which is why he's a soldier, what would move him from unquestioning and unshakable loyalty to his superior officers to at the end of this text, not only question his orders, but question the very system that has now executed an innocent man? Do you think he ever would have conceived of someone who he was crucifying, not using his last and dying breaths to curse his accusers, or to convince his accusers of his innocence, but rather he uses his dying breath to forgive them. What are we going to do on Good Friday with a Jesus who prays for you and the very sin that sent him to the cross? What moves the Roman centurion from making fun of Jesus to making much of Jesus? Perhaps number two is Jesus' response to sarcasm and criticism, even when he's at his most vulnerable. Silence. This is perhaps the way that I'm least like Jesus. Roman centurion perhaps wants to have a little fun. After all, he's got to get this thing going. He's probably seen a lot of executions. He probably has to keep up the morale of his men. And so he notices that the crowd is particularly rowdy against this Jewish rabbi who's accused of blaspheming and treason. And he knows there's some political maneuvering, but after all, let's, let's see if you can't poke him a little bit and rile him up and see if he won't writhe in anger and finally start insulting curses and hurling and trying to convince every one of his innocence. But here's what Jesus silently endures. Verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers sneered at him. He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one, that's not enough. Now soldiers jump in. 
They mocked him too. They offered him wine vinegar. They said, hey, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. <laughs> no response. Let's add insult to injury. Let's put a notice above him that says, hail the king of the Jews. Ha, ha, ha. Dying, crucified criminal. A crucified king. Who could ever think of such a thing? <laughs> and then I imagine to the Roman centurion chagrin, who knows that there is no honor among thieves, one of the criminals begins to mock him. And this is probably when it gets good. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. What do you do with a savior who seems unable to save even himself? And what do you do with a gospel text where the most profound confessions of the identity of Christ, God's Messiah, the chosen one, the king of the Jews, are not declarations of faith, but denials of belief. What moves the Roman centurion from making fun of Jesus to making much of Jesus? I think it's Jesus' response to a guilty criminal. In verse 40, we hear about this dying criminal next to him looks over and sees someone else dying. I don't know what it is about Jesus' presence, the way that he died, his silence, his forgiveness, or what, but he looks over and sees an apparent crucified king who looks powerless and who appears to have zero authority to change the circumstances that they are in, and something dramatic and drastic happens. First of all, he admits his guilt. He rebukes the other criminal and says, what are you doing? We deserve what is happening to us. We are guilty. Not only does he admit his guilt, he takes full acceptance of the consequences of his actions. And then he pleads for mercy. And he looks at a dying Jesus and says, please, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's confessing that he is a king. Is it possible, men and women, that the unseen is more real than the seen, and that Jesus' kingdom is greater than any reality that we can see or perceive. And what if life after death is more real than the death of this life? What will you do on Friday with an innocent Jesus whose dying concern is to take away the guilt of the man dying next to him? What moves the Roman centurion from making fun of Jesus to making much of Jesus? Lastly, I would say it's Jesus' response to his own death. He trusted God. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I don't know if Jesus' response fell from that cross and came crashing down with concussive force on the Roman centurion's head but something changed. And he's watching as if Jesus, even in death, it's not something he's succumbing to, it's something he's submitting to. As if he's giving death the authority to take him. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I imagine the Roman centurion has never seen such confidence and conviction fall from the mouth of another man living or dying. 
And the way that Jesus died was compelling. The way that he faced death and still trusted God was convincing. What do you do with a dead Jesus who just dealt death its death blow? And what do you do when you realize you've had a hand in mocking something sacred, taunting something true, and literally beating and bruising something beautiful? You do what the Roman centurion did. You praise God and you confess. Surely, this was a righteous man. Does he say the sinner's prayer? No. Does he fully express all the theological nuances of Jesus's identity and his inadequacy before God? No. But I would submit to you, he makes the boldest declaration of faith possible to him for what he has just witnessed. Because for the Roman centurion, the cross demands a response. And for you and I, it demands a response. And just so we're clear, no response is a response, and that response is rejection. Either you're making fun of Jesus, or you're making much of him. The cross does not give you a third option. So what's your response tonight? Can we become the type of people who faithfully respond to the cross? Can we be people who move, whether in our attitudes or our actions or in our relationships or in our work ethic, from making fun of Jesus to making much of Jesus? Can we move from blaspheming God and blaspheming our brothers and sisters in Christ to blessing God and blessing one another? Can we move from laughing at scripture and its outdated claims on morality to actually lamenting our sin and brokenness? Can we move from flaunting our gossip, our embassy, envy, our jealousy, and our strife, and our derisive comments towards each other to freely forgiving one another, even as God has forgiven us? Can we move from holding on to our anger so tightly to holding on to Jesus? And can we move from looking down on Jesus to looking up to the cross of Jesus. The band's gonna come and we're gonna spend 120 seconds contemplating our response. Where do you need to move tonight? The cross demands a response and no response is rejection. Where if we had the courage to linger just a little bit longer at the cross the point where it became uncomfortable, what would God reveal to us through a suffering servant and a faithful forgiver? As you look and linger longer at Jesus, what response of his is furthest away from your responses? Being falsely accused, he forgives being criticized and derided, he's silent. Being presented with someone who is guilty, he offers mercy.
And when he confronts death, he responds with trust. So let's linger a little bit longer at the cross and then let's respond to it.